Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the guy that sent him out for a big box of Turkish Delight, Duncan Nickel. And we are a fortnightly podcast where we read and review a fantasy novel. And this particular episode, we discuss The Lion, Witch and Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. Duncan, how have you been since our last episode? I've been really good. I, I'll be honest with you, Geordie. I've been reading around. I haven't necessarily spent this entire time just reading The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. In fact, I kind of maybe forgot to read this book until, oh, ooh, 24 hours ago. Oh, dear. Okay. Well, I, I can't believe I'm asking this question, but did you finish it? Two hours, six minutes, flat. Beautiful that is... book. I mean, I know it's not a long book, but I'm actually genuinely surprised that you can whiz through it that fast. Mind you, I mean, the audiobook I listen to is like four and a half hours long. So I listened to that over the span of just a couple of days. I mean, at the end of the day, Geordie, this book, the copy that I have in my hand, was 170 pages. And it does not take me a minute to read one page. Sure, sure. And this has pictures. There are quite a lot of pictures as well. <laughs> so I genuinely think you could probably only need to average about a page and a quarter a minute and you will breeze through this. Oh, to be clear, I did do that in two sittings. That wasn't a solid stint. I did an hour and then an hour six. But It's been a really, really long time since I read a whole book in one sitting. It used to happen a lot when I was a kid, but now I guess I have a job and I don't normally just plow through things in one go. I can't remember the last time. Obviously, a lot of short stories. Yeah, I lead a lot of like sword and sorcery short stories. They're often one sitting. Yeah. The last Even time the I really remember, kings. not a long book. That took me like a week. Same here. The only thing I can remember from like, and this is going back from when I was a kid. I never reading because I very rarely actually do this, but I never reading the Owen Colfer did um the same guy who wrote Artemis Fowl, Owen Colfer. Mm. He wrote like a detective book, like a young. Yeah, it was called, um, like, Half Moon Fletcher or something. Something along those lines, like the Half Moon's Detective Agency or something of that vibe. And mm. I remember it's, like, the first detective book I'd ever read. I must have been, <laughs> like, 11 years old. And I so wanted to know what, like, the mystery was on it. I, I did a proper childhood, hid under the, my covers with a little light. Yeah. So that my mum wouldn't tell me to go to sleep. And I was mm. up till about three in the morning. I was like, Perfect. I need to finish this. Now, I remember um, I did, the book I was probably the most excited for in my life was the last book in uh, the Chaos Walking trilogy. And I picked that up. Uh, I got it on the first day of holiday. And it's a thick book. And it was a hardcover and all that. And I just, the first day of the holiday, I just read the book. I was with family. I ignored them. I sat on the sofa. People were watching TV. I read the book. I was up till... Probably two, three o'clock in the morning, the latest I'd ever stayed up to that point in my life. Just read the book, finished it in one day, had nothing to read for the rest of the holiday. <laughs> oh, you poor man. I ended up reading my sister's like book for the holiday, and it wasn't even the first book in that series, like the second or third book. So I only somewhat knew what was going on. I, I really don't know what to say to that. I think, firstly, well done to you. But secondly, do you ever find that if you read something that quickly, that you kind of just get a bit of a blur in like what happened and what was going on? No, I don't Surely actually. Because I only would be read that fast with a book if I really cared about it. 
I only skip over and blur details, you know, when I'm when I'm sleepy, or I guess when I'm just not paying attention. Duncan, by the way, you haven't heard the episode yet because we haven't edited it, but you were totally right about Legends and Lattes. I was completely wrong about that. I feel so vindicated, and you want to know what Geordie's referencing? Go back and listen to the Legends and Lattes episode. So, Geordie, at the end of that episode, you picked The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And That's right. Do you want to kind of give your reasons why? What? Why this book? It, it Because Father Christmas shows up. <laughs> That's 100% the reason why I picked it. You know, um, there are very few fantasy novels out there where, you know, rather than a nymph handing our, our heroes the weapon they need, where they don't need to, like, forge away to the top of a mountain and pass numerous trials to seize that magical item, but instead Father Christmas rocks up and hands it to them, that is, that is just completely out there, man. I love that scene. I really enjoyed that scene on this reread, as how kind of canonized. It just makes Father Christmas in this fantasy world. Something that it didn't really introduce with any other aspect. It's like, no, you're a kid. You understand Father Christmas is real. And this is how he works. And you go, yeah, he's okay. real. Why wouldn't he show up? There's a great bit of a story where uh, a giant shows up. And the narrator says, like, now, giants are so rare in England these days that you might never have seen one. And that's great, because he's like, I'm not going to ruin the idea that the child might genuinely still believe in fairy tales and stuff. And I'm not going to quite take that away from him. I'm going to preserve some of that magic. It's so sweet. Talking about kind of the aspect that, you know, this is for children. Did you first read this when you were a kid? This certainly yes. isn't your first time. Okay. No. How uh, old were and- you? What was your experience with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? probably four years old, really young. Like, um, this would probably be, aside from actual fairy tales, one of my first fantasy novels. We had the book on tape. And the great thing about it, Duncan, is, uh, because I, you know, because I live that mile a minute, hectic podcaster life, uh, I don't have time to sit down and read physical books these days. I have to often rely on audiobooks. I looked out to see if there was a Lion, Witch, and a Wardrobe audiobook, and there was. And it was the exact same version, like the cassette tape version that I listened to when I was a tiny kid. And so this was like the, the pure, pure liquid nostalgia being poured through my ear and mixed up in my head. That is so kind of su- sweet, I think. <laughs> having a hot liquid nostalgia poured into your brain i didn't have quite the same experience so when i was a kid i did have a cassette mm. but it wasn't the lion the witch in the wardrobe one i had the magician's nephew cassette and that one yes you read it in canonical order as opposed to publication order which is a crime against God okay, and I'm going to come out and firstly, ex- explanation here. The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is the first published Chronicles of Narnia book. Came out in 1950, written by C.S. Lewis. He then he did later on write a prequel called The Magician's Nephew. I would say that in my humble experience, either one of those is good enough to start with. I think they're both some of the top tier of the series. And I don't think you ruin Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by having read Magician's Nephew first. It just feels wrong, man. Like, 
You're supposed to start with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Everyone knows that. It's like reading the Silmarillion before Lord of the Rings or before The Hobbit. That's the wrong way to do it. No, maybe I don't disagree. No, I do disagree. I disagree with your conclusions. I don't disagree with your comparisons because I think C.S. Lewis writes Magician's Nephew to be a suitable enough entry point in the same way that Michael Moorcock wrote Elric of Melnibane to be an entry point despite being a prequel to some of his other work. I, if you told me that C.S. Lewis wrote Magician's Nephew so that you just couldn't ha- handle it if you hadn't read Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe first, I would not believe you. And if there's an interview where he says that, fair enough, but it's just not my experience. Well, knowing what you know now, Duncan, if you had to pick a starting point, the best place to start the series, Magician's Nephew, Lion, the Witch in a Wardrobe, which one do you think you'd pick? I actually have no idea. Um, probably go backwards because that's the better book, in my opinion. In my opinion, oh, Geordie, before we really deep dive in Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe, because we both have a lot of love for this book, oh, I should probably say this. So I had Magician's Nephew on cassette, and along with Martin Shaw's The Hobbit, one of those ones I just re-listened to and re-listened to, I got my dad to start reading me The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the book. He then found the uh, 1979 BBC TV adaptation. Oh yeah, of course. Bought it and went, there you go. <laughs> no, but that series is an absolute classic. I loved that when I was growing up. They actually showed it in my school when I was in, like, um... I don't know, like year three, year one, year reception even. I don't remember which. And this was before the movie had come out. A world before the film came out. Like, I really wanted just like a shout out. because I don't think they get enough love. Is that the BBC did adaptations of the first four published Narnia books. That being Lion, the Witch of Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, Voyage of the Dawn Treader and The Silver Chair. And for some reason... I end. I think I saw Silver Chair first. Like that was actually my introduction, and that is such a trippy experience if you don't really know what's going on. But I had this DVD for the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, and I rewatched it a lot. And I think when the film came out, two thousand and five, I was nine years old. It came out just the perfect time for me. I loved that movie, and I, having reread the book now, I will say. It does a really good job of capturing how the book feels. I totally agree. Um, the Lion, Witch and Wardrobe and Prince Caspian as well, the, uh, the follow-up, they came out at the perfect time for me because, you know, I guess I was, if it came out, I was seven when it came out. So I was pretty young, but young enough to like be in like a Star Wars sort of frame of mind. But when the sequel came out, I was a little bit older and I was more prepared for the slightly grittier take they had on it and like they, they emphasized the fighting aspect of it a lot more I, oh god I really lived right through my head but for some reason I never saw Voyage of a Dawn Treader I actually somehow convinced myself that because I hadn't seen it it just didn't exist like it had never come out and no one had ever talked about it but it, it does exist and it is out there and I still haven't seen it oh I've got to admit something now so I was two years older than you so when the second film came out, it came out three years later, I would have been 12 going on 13. I didn't watch it in cinemas. Like, it just wasn't something I, I don't even remember, like, asking my mum to take me to see it. I, I feel like I kind of missed out on Prince Caspian. I have gone back and watched it since, and I think it's a, a very solid kids fantasy film. Well, not even just kids, it's a great family fantasy movie. 
but I do feel like I just missed out on it. Where the first film I had, I I saw it on my birthday, and I got like the video game in the morning. So I was like playing the game, went to see the movie. <laughs> I'd seen the BBC version and had still hadn't read the book for some reason. So how old were you when you finally did read the books? Um, 26 years old. I think we'd already started recording this podcast. I sat down and I tried to do a chronological read through and I got all the way up to Voyage of the Dawn Treader and I went, nope. So now that we've sort of talked about our personal history with the books and the series, let's actually like get in and start talking about the book itself. So I think we talked about enough about how kind of great the series is in our experience. Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Geordie. It's a good book. Oh, I had such an amazing time with it. It was so sweet and so charming and, and so full of uh, good vibes. But also, it felt like I was reading it as a fantasy novel for the first time. Not just like a children's story, but like, no, this is like a formative book like the way they just talk about the grand history of the world that's not something i ever paid any real attention to before i really agree with you geordie the use of the narrator's voice gives this a really nice kind of fairy tale vibe you know this is someone telling you the story almost as an adult reading it putting you in that childlike position to take in this fairy tale but at the same time really shuddling a really good line with actually being kind of an epic fantasy bringing this other world and having just enough, not a lot, but just enough of the largest sense of a larger scale um, to kind of carry the whole work. Yeah, I that's something I completely missed as a kid. Like, I remember them talking about, like, prophecies and care paravel, but what I didn't get was those classic just make-shit-up moments you have in fantasy novels, like when they say... You were there when the Emperor of the Sun uh, entered into the world. You should know his laws. And I'm like, that's so weird. But it's like in Lord of the Rings where Saruman just lists, like, the the scepters of the five kings. What five kings? What are you talking about? It's just a cool fantasy thing. That is so true. And I think the right vibe with Narnia, though, is that it does kind of lift these things out. But I've never got the impression that Narnia was one of those worlds, like Lord of the Rings, where there is a particularly hard-set deep lore. It's more of a... Now, is that not the case? Because that the impression I got is that as the novels expanded out, and, I've, and I think I've said this already, but I've only read three of them, like the core central trilogy of wardrobe, Prince Caspian and Voyage on the Dawn Treader. I've never read the final battle. I've never read the Silver Chair. My understanding was it starts to get deep, hard fantasy at a certain point. So I have read all the way up to Dawn Treader. I've seen the BBC adaptation of the Silver Chair. And actually, um, when I was young, I didn't mention this earlier, I did listen to the audiobook of the final battle. Got it from the library one what? day. What? I know, it just said Narnia. <laughs> I didn't think. And in many respects, I think it spoiled me on the series. It made me kind of not want to read all the others because I went, what on earth is this book? This cataclysmic, yeah, that's what I hear. apocalyptic, kind of racist final in the series. Oh, no. It's a very different read. It, so I had an ex-girlfriend. Well, I, I have... I still, she's still an ex-girlfriend. So I have an ex-girlfriend who was super into Narnia. She was like in the Narnia fandom, reading like Narnia fan fiction and stuff. 
I think a lot of people really like to ship themselves with Edmund, like the movie version of Edmund. So I think I think you get the idea. But basically, fans of a particular set of fans of Narnia, at least, just do not like that last book because it murders all the children. Yes, it does. It, he kills them all off and sends them off to heaven. And that's meant to be your happy ending in your Christian story. Except for Susan. It says, because depending on your reading, it's either like, Su- I guess Susan was his favourite because she doesn't die. Or it's, I guess he fucking hates Susan because she remains unenlightened and forgets Narnia existed. Just lives a boring life. I mean, yeah. That is definitely kind of the vibe that it, it puts out. It, to be honest, it's one of the most controversial things. It's why Susan, why does C.S. Lewis pick that character and what is he even trying to say by having her effectively denied entrance to heaven with everyone else? Also, why is everyone dying young and going to heaven the good ending? I don't want to unpack the final battle. That is not what this episode is about. But no, it's we'll there. we have to get to that one in turn. I think it's a dark shadow. Back to the line. Is it just because oh, Susan is like the sensible one? So like he's the one he thinks would be kind of like an annoying atheist? Well, I don't know. I don't take that stance. I think certainly one argument that a lot of people bring up is that he picks on Susan just because Susan is the oldest one of the two girls. And he's like, ah, oh, she does not take the fantasies really more seriously. Basically, a lot of actions have been it's a very sexist choice. For me, I mean, I'm looking at my notes. Even reading this book back, I put, like, little notes. Whenever I... I note down characters' names, not that I needed to for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I, I know them all. But I do it out of habit for preparing for this. And I always put, drop down notes next to them, things I want to discuss. And it literally goes, like, Peter, hero. Lucy, innocent, mm-hmm. whimsical, pure of heart. Edmund, traitor, redemption. And I just went, Susan, there. Yeah, she doesn't even get to use her gift. In the movie, they, like, they give, they make sure that, like, she, you see her practicing with her bow and arrow, and she, like, shoots a guy at the end. And I think in the next movie, she, like, is involved in, like, the raid in the castle and stuff. But she, in the books, she's given this, this bow and arrow, and Santa says, you will not use this. I'm making a prophecy right now that this is a completely redundant gift. She never uses it. She only uses the horn to call for help. And it's so baked in, the idea he's like, not even you won't use this. He goes, and you shouldn't use this, for it is messy when women get involved in battle. Do not <laughs> know, fight. Terrible. Like, and of course, the reason why Lucy is permitted to take part in exciting parts, and she leads so much of the action, despite being the youngest, and like really young, younger than I remembered, is that... This is something I completely forgot. I forgot about the dedication at the start of the book. Duncan, I trust your version of the book also had a dedication at the front? Um, I'm looking at my copy of the book. To Lucy Barfield. I wrote this yes, story for exactly. you. So this was a really great part of the story. I completely forgot about it. It's the first thing I'm confronted with. And this is the first time you get a sense of that narrative voice, that it's not just a narrator writing to you. It really connects to C.S. Lewis himself. And I get... Are we allowed to read the whole thing? It's very short. Let's go for it. I feel like I, I should read it just because it is really important to the course of a story. 
And it also under, underlines something which really, is really important about fantasy. My dear Lucy, I wrote this story for you. But when I began it, I had not realized that girls grow quicker than books. As a result, you're already too old for fairy tales. And by the time it is printed and bound, you'll be older still. But someday you'll be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. You can then take it down from some upper shelf, dust it, and tell me what you think of it. I shall probably be too deaf to hear and too old to understand a word you say, but I shall still be your affectionate godfather, C.S. Lewis. That actually makes me a little emotional. It's really cute, isn't it? And knowing, and this is something I had known long, long ago, but forgotten, that Lucy is based off of, like, a, almost a relative of his, someone he knows specifically. It's like, okay, that's why she's the main character. That's why she is the instigator of everything, and the character who's there for all of the most important events, like walking through the wardrobe for the first time, and seeing Aslan's resurrection, and why Susan can take a back seat, because Lucio still can't be the big hero, that's Ed, that's Peter, she can't be the redeemed one, the Judas, that's Edmund, Susan, the other girl, is disposable. And it's kind of painful to say that, because I do even remember kind of growing up i have three siblings and we have the same breakdown in terms of agenda divide mm. and i do have memories of playing narnia as like a game between us mm. do you want to guess who got which characters and how we did the divide i can't remember if you're the oldest brother but i'm assuming you're peter so yeah i'm the oldest brother peter my younger siblings obviously who played lucy and edmund and my oldest sister who was the White Witch. <laughs> Far more interesting a character. And you need a villain. You can't just all play on the same side. Gosh. No, Dull. terrible. I mean, Edmund's kind of a villain. But anyway. Um... And I really like that opening because it connects the narrator's voice directly to C.S. Lewis. And that's something mm. that I really felt reading this. And it does remind me, I'm going to do a lot of comparisons to this, but just because the two series are so intertwined in my mind and in my childhood, reading this and thinking back to something like The Hobbit, that really feels sure. like you are being told this story by Tolkien. Mm -hmm. This book feels so much that I'm being spoken to by C.S. Lewis. He is narrating this wonderful fairy tale with sort of early elements of epic fantasy springing up there. Can you remember 1950, Lord of the Rings, not out yet. This is still early days and just little details where sometimes things maybe get a little bit too epic when the battle's about to be formed. But we meet a giant and his name's like Rumbletree. And I'm like, what a mm -hmm. Jack and the Beanstalk name for your giant to keep it on that level. So I think that's a wonderful theme and I really think it's, this is such a great book for the young readers. But what actually happens... It is interesting to me how rooted it is in the idea that this is a fairy tale. And how, you know, that's what we consider these, some of these pinnacles of fantasy of which so much is based. Like, a huge amount of portal fantasy, as we call it, people being transported to another world, is based off of Narnia. And they wouldn't have really thought of it as, like, anything to do with Conan the Barbarian, which is also fantasy. They would have called this a fairy tale, you know? And I'm kind of happy that distinction's there, because it's really nice to have fantasy that, in my mind, is so unabatedly directed towards 
both children like this is for kids this is for small kids to enjoy mm. but it's written i think with enough kind of respect for them that it can be enjoyed by like the child and like every adult and that is such exactly. a wonderful line to what, strike that's what the dedication's all about the idea that and this is something that I really, I, I know resonated with me as a kid and it became this, this lodestone that I, would, that I would come to understand later that when you grow up, there does come a time when after rejecting fantasy and fairy tales, that you do come back to it. And I am an adult who still loves fantasy. And I can see suddenly how much of my DNA has been created from that one dedication. I just really like to observe at this point because we say you know rejecting fantasy and i think back and went yeah i did that for like a solid maybe 12 months when i was uh maybe 13 14 <laughs> very i quick. was really into the cherub books for a while and i don't think i was reading any fantasy novels at the time i think there was just such a onslaught of harry potter like when i was growing up that I, you could never it was never uncool like you, you never, you, you know, it was always okay to like Harry Potter. Everyone liked Harry Potter, and then by the time I was sort of through that, I'd found like Game of Thrones, and Game of Thrones had even kind of started on TV, and then it was completely cool mm-hmm. and open, and then I rode that train until we're like here. It was never not completely socially acceptable to love fantasy and openly love it. The only time that I really actually stopped reading was around when I was 15 to 17 years old, where I didn't read as much because I just started writing. And any time I would sit down and want to read, I would instead start writing stuff. Oh, that's a good dedication. Respect for that, mate. I could never resist the urge to read someone else's work. It was detrimental because my grammar got a lot worse. Right, Geordie, we've talked so much about kind of why we love it and our emotional connection. Should we actually just break down some of the big moments in the plot and just the scenes that really work? I think that's the only way to really honour this book is to actually bring up, you know, I guess I, I find it kind of hard to believe that anyone who's a big fan of fantasy would listen to this podcast episode and not have seen it. And the book is so short and so simple that it's not like you're going to miss anything going back through it. Like... I would strongly recommend anyone who's a fan of fantasy to pick this book up. You can definitely find it for cheap somewhere. It's um, it's super short. Duncan read it in two hours. You can you can watch this whole thing in a time it would take you to watch a Marvel movie. Yeah, like I would seriously recommend this book. It's and um, because it's such an important aspect of fantasy and it's so charming and sweet and enjoyable. And things just like the meeting of Mr. Tumnus and the first appearance of Aslan and his resurrection. I feel like these are important pinnacle moments in fantasy. But yeah, I guess we can talk about the actual like scenes themselves if you like, Duncan. I've always been very partial to the scene about them going to a beaver's house and just having a big hearty meal. I love that scene. I love that scene. I love the run up to that scene because before you, we get to them being in the house and having this really detailed description of food, by the way, like George R. R. Martin, I see mm. where the inspiration came from, is that we get this lovely scene <laughs> where they're walking out to the beaver's house on this dam and nothing particularly is happening. It's not an action sequence. They're just walking across the dam, but it does... A great job of having it where so they're on the dam so on one side of them is the drop 
into like the frozen rapids below and the other side is just the the water level they're at and they talk about how it's just like really slippery underfoot and they paint such a wonderful picture of this dark night slippery under the foot these kids wrapped in their big fur coats and then to juxtapose that with when we finally get to the beaver's house and mrs beaver is there at her sewing machine it's like come in come around the half it feels so warming it's true yeah, there's something which is really interesting about this book, which is that it's written in quite this this old-fashioned style, as you'd expect, of a book from the 1950s, where, it, unlike many modern books, where we're so caught up in the beat-to-beat detailed moments, like take our episode on A Court of Thorns and Roses, there really aren't many points that you don't see in that, in that character's journey throughout the book. You go day-to-day-to-day, moment-to-moment, everything's really covered. It's very, very rarely that you breeze over a lengthy period of time in this it has a much lighter touch you aren't in it the moment to moment passage time is quite flexible they just say they march for hours and hours or they say and they ran and ran and i can't even tell you how long they ran or how long the sledge uh flew through the forest it has this very gentle distant approach but then it hones in on these sensory effects and it uses language around, like, rather than, say, just describe the way it made characters feel, it exits the story and says, perhaps you've had a moment like this in your own life, where you wake up in the morning and you realise it's the start of the school holidays. And it creates such a vivid sensory effect by by stepping outside the story and, and, and just trying to grab directly at, you know, the strings in your head that it's really evocative and strong. I would think that's quite brave to address the reader so bluntly and not something I think we've actually really ever seen. You're like, I'm not even going to discuss... Well, I, what, something I noticed... Something, oh, I hate to interrupt you, Duncan. I'm okay. sorry. Uh, something I noticed in this is that this is an omnipresent narrator. This is a, a, sorry, an omniscient narrator. They're inside everyone's heads. He can tell you what anyone is thinking at any given moment. And have we had that narrator so far in the history of this podcast? No. (laughs) I was really surprised by that. Because in some ways, what I was taught when I was at school is that it is the most basic form of storytelling, where you're just a god looking down and you have access to all the information and you parcel it out as you see fit. And then stuff like third person limited and first person are more nuanced. I generally say that third person limited is the mode, at least in my experience, of most of the fantasy books out there. I think that's true. And I think, and personally, it is my favourite. I think it is um, the perfect balance of, you know, uh, detailed in a place where it needs to be detailed, whilst also permitting stuff like mystery to take place. I think it's the, uh, I think it's the ultimate. I'm not a... I'm not the biggest fan of first person, to be honest. And I really struggled when I when I try to write in first person. It's uh, it's something I have to confront. How I would always just talk about, like, any other... So, third person limited is such a standard that I wouldn't really address it. I don't think we ever really bring it up. We don't go, oh, they've chosen to use third person limited. Well, what a good decision mm-hmm. there. But if anything else, first person, also, and I always go back to, like, my A-level English class and be like, well, are they a reliable narrator? Why are they telling it me like this? Like, it always gets you to get into that zone. Or if it's something I, really weird, like 
second person you go okay you've made an artsy choice it better be worth it yeah i i just these days to be honest and when i read first person present tense i just immediately mentally knock down a star i i for the most part i i think most people just cannot really hack it everything comes off as so hokey and fake sounding when you say i am doing this or you say I feel on my back this and that. It just it doesn't feel the way someone would actually think about themselves. I I, I I just and I much prefer first person past tense where it's literally someone recounting their life. You know, like a like a Bernard Cornwall novel. I really enjoy that. There's a great example of something that we'll probably cover one day in the Black Company books, where it's mm. written it's to be Yeah, it's the Chronicler. It's meant to be these in universe journals. So it mm-hmm. works when they said, I did this, I did that. And telling you it, it, they're, they're noting this all down. But that is not what we're doing in The Line of the Witch in the Wardrobe. Gosh, we're a bit of a precise step we took. They said, is omniscient. And I think it gives you that kind of safe feeling. And I mm-hmm. don't know if it's because, obviously, the tone. I know the audience. I know the plot. Since I was so young, I don't even remember first learning the plot. But I think this omniscient narrator kind of gives me this vibe of, don't you worry. Nothing too horrific is going to happen here. I've got you. Absolutely. Uh, it's so much to the point that I, and I guess this is just because I conflated with the movie so much. I forgot that the final battle, not the final battle is in the last battle, but the final battle in this story, um, it doesn't really happen on screen. It all happens post haste. Uh, Aslan shows up right at its near its conclusion and then he wins and that's it that's the that's the culmination of the story and I'll be honest reading this for the first time that I did last year I was like oh is that anticlimactic was that would I have wanted that battle to be shown in the book personally I think it's a great choice not having it there because I think you say like Peter's the hero but he's not our main character Lucy's our main character and I'm very happy to keep the focus on her and what she's going through in her emotional journey with Aslan. That's ultimately what the book's about in terms of you know, the fantasy world. And obviously, C.S. Lewis, and we can finally break that barrier. Strong emphasis on the Christian values. Aslan is a very clear standing with the resurrection. Yes. This is a story about a young girl, Lucy, connecting with Jesus. That's the focus. That's, it, it, that's true. It is, and it's so obviously the focus that, I mean, I guess I didn't get it when I was a kid, like, but I also was just going to church when I was a kid, so I didn't really connect it to, like, the Easter story, because that was already just a part of my life, and something I was just like, yeah, this is all true. It's not a story, it's just a thing that happened. But, like, when Aslan is resurrected, and he comes back all jolly, by the way, he totally speed runs the resurrection. He didn't have to wait three days. He was back the next day. Get get stuffed, Jesus. I mean, lion Jesus is better than human Jesus. Let's not debate that. I I mean, I wasn't going to say it. He has all the same powers. I bet Aslan could walk on water. And he can jump real high. I always find it quite confusing because Aslan is described in this book as the son of the emperor across the sea. Or something to that effect. Do you remember that line? Yeah. And I was like, wait. I do, I do. But Aslan's also, the magician's nephew, clearly the one that brings the world into existence. So I'm like, 
are we saying is Aslan Jesus or is Aslan God? I'm I'm confused. Are we gonna have like a Nicene debate about the Homoousian nature of Aslan and the emperor across the sea? I mean, yeah, who's the emperor? Does he get referenced again? We talk about Aslan country, but that's not New Narnia in the last battle. I don't understand. I mean, we maybe we got a deep dive into his books. It's got to be in there somewhere. I mean, I've never seen the creation of a cosmos. All I know is that apparently the center of all reality is that one lamppost for some reason. You don't know why the lamppost is there? No, it's just like, <gasps> the, like the first thing in existence or something, right? This is amazing. No, I, when I was reading this book, I genuinely had the thought... Wow, how magical and bizarre and what amazing imagery is this random lamppost in the middle of the woods in this fantasy land that doesn't have anything else like that apart from a sewing machine. Get back to that. Um, (laughs) So I was like, what would it be like to read this and not know why the lamppost is there? And you don't know. No, of course I don't know. And neither did C.S. Lewis. The reason he put in the stories, he had a bet with Tolkien. Where Tolkien was like, there will never be a lamppost in a fantasy novel. And C.S. Lewis is like, man, Tolkien would have hated urban fantasy, am I right? (laughs) Is that true? Is that actually the origins? I believe that that is true. That's what I've heard. I will confirm now. It's true. Okay, well, now we know. It wasn't that interesting, Duncan. Absolutely fascinating. I just think it creates such a surreal imagery. The lampposts in the snow, in the woods... Mr. Tumnus, God, Geordie, I want to talk about individual scenes. No, Duncan, you can't just say you don't know why the lamppost is there. Why is the lamppost there? Oh, do you want to know? Yeah. So um, the White Witch, Jardis, gets taken from her homeworld back to the land between worlds and they go into the water pool while holding the magic rings to travel back to present day England. And then she goes on a rampage through the centre of London. She grabs off a piece of metal from one of the lampposts to beat off the policeman. Um, But then they grab her, use the magic rings and pull her into the land between worlds again. They dive into the new pool, which takes them to Narnia before it's created. And then Aslan sings the world into existence. And then she drops the piece of the lamppost. But because the land's so full of life, the piece of the lamppost grows into a full lamppost. And thus there's a lamppost. Come on. Simple. I've never actually said this before unironically, but I wish I hadn't asked that. That was too much information, and I take my hat off to you, Duncan. Well done. I will never ask you another question again. And then they go to the Garden of Eden. It's a thrilling book. Uh, the <laughs> nephew. So, Geordie, I, when I think about The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and I'm just going to talk a bit more about nostalgia, it's that this is a book with so many scenes that I truly want to say iconic. You know, I want to yeah, gush. for sure. I mean, it's so, it's so short and so evenly run through. It takes place over like four days. And there's so few chapters in this book. I think the only bit in this book mm-hmm. which I am vaguely, vaguely like... Oh, the this bit is the little bit I think of Edmund on the Queen's sleigh as they're like crossing the countryside. There's a tiny bit there that I'm like, okay, you're filling space. But every other chapter in this book, I'm like, we're in this next iconic scene. Oh my god, we're in the next iconic scene. Oh my god, we're in the next iconic scene. Beautifully paced. I hear what you're saying. I do. Yeah. Is there any moment would you call? Is there anything in this book that you think is like downtime? You're like. Nothing happening. 
Just exhibition. Ex. Oh my god. Just giving me information. Exposition. Exposition. Oh god, is there? No, no, I don't think there is. I mean, even that scene that you don't like, apparently, I think it's okay. I like the. I like the scene itself. It's and the phrase of it about like him traveling for hours and hours and like losing all track of time. I, uh, I, it connected with me. I've never forgotten that from listening to it so many times when I was a kid. The one scene that I, I just don't like, period, is C.S. Lewis is clearly not interested in writing big action sequences. That's, that's no surprise. It's, just, it's a book for very little kids in his mind. And so the moment where Edmund gets rescued, it's all done via radio dialogue, where Edmund doesn't perceive anything. He just reports the different sounds which the characters make, like saying like, I've got him. Oof, sorry, I bumped into you. Oh, terrible. Where did a white witch go? Hang on, that's a stump. <laughs> I love how all the Narnian creatures turn into these sort of like um, World War Two fighter pilots. House characters. <laughs> yeah, from like a, from the one the movies, obviously. And I'm like, oh, jolly old chaps. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, we've made a mistake there. Oh, I'm like, this is the most English book we've read in his entire story. In our entire podcast. And that's an important point that which we haven't brought up. The setting of this book isn't just Narnia. It is set in wartime Britain. Yeah, it didn't have as much of an effect as I thought it would. Like, I, I actually, Duncan, I watched the first part of the BBC TV version before this episode uh i didn't watch the whole thing i i didn't have time for that but i watched the beginning of it and it like the movie begins with their evacuation but that is breezed over so fast in the book i mean it barely even happens they just say they arrive at this manor house in the countryside under the context of evacuation a big very important event in the lives of many british school children during um during the early part of the 20th century in Britain. But they barely mention it. Like, there's one bit where Edmund even says that he's on school holiday. Like, you're not on holiday, kid! Your home's being exploded by by the Luftwaffe! It's interesting, because there's also a bit where they talk about writing to mum and dad. And I think in most adaptations, they infer that dad's away at war. At least that's how they do it in the 2005 version. I think it's really nice, because it... It definitely speaks to the idea, like I said, this is coming out in 1950, that, because Lewis does that classic thing, and I don't know if this is just a British thing. Geordie, you've been to the States, maybe you'd be able to tell me more. But in Britain, I you just have to say, it's like saying the Queen. You say the war, people know which war. There's no question. There's no yeah. debate. Yeah, we know which one, mate. Sure. So, is that a universal? It can't, it can't be universal. Is that a... It's certainly not universal. Some people are in a war right now, Duncan. Exactly. If you say the war, they point out the window and say, yeah, I remember. So that's funny. Um, I don't know, man. I didn't talk to enough vets. I think if you said the war in America, they probably assume, at least when I was living there, you meant the war in Afghanistan. And I think it's very interesting, obviously, because all the characters, as like I said, we get very little explanation for sort of evacuation, but it wouldn't, that wouldn't have needed context. In 1950. No, it's written in 1950, uh, 1950. They still hadn't rebuilt most of London. 
So I do like the fact that then in a lot of adaptations, they do add in their additional context for a new audience. And I do feel if I'd read, if someone just gave me this book as a young kid, I think I was maybe 10 years old when I got my history on the wall. Did you ever have to do that? Did you ever have a day at school? And this is going to... Oh, we sure did. Good. Well, Duncan, what you forget is that I live uh, next to the town of Duxford, as we learnt in our episode of The Shadow of Innsmouth. And that has the largest collection of Spitfires in the world. And it's a big World War II history site. So we were constantly, constantly going on school trips to Duxford to learn about World War II. And one time we actually were made to dress up as evacuees, like with those special boxes tied to us and everything. I that clapped in completely in the audio. Yes, I'm glad that you said that's the case, because that's what I was referring to. Every British school, as far as I'm aware, will have this day when you're like 10 years old, where they make you dress up like a child in the 1930s to do... I bet they don't do that in Russia. <laughs> I bet they're not like, now you, must, now you must dress up as the starving orphans of Stalingrad. So I asked my girlfriend if she at school ever had a day where they dressed up as evacuees, uh, and she said, no, that's so fucked up, in a horrified voice. So apparently it's not universal. Uh, if you're from a country that was involved in World War II, did you ever have to dress up as evacuated children? Please, let us know at isviciousfantasypodcast.gmo.com or at our Instagram, isviciousfantasy. And I hope they don't, but maybe they need to remember. Anyway, and it's such a weird thing, because you're like, this isn't like, it's not like, I don't know, doing like the Romans and doing like togas. It's like, this was just normal clothes at the time. Mm. Uh, we also had a great one where they also did the the fire alarm. So you could get the experience of having to rush out if there was an air raid. What? <laughs> Madness. We didn't do that. That's not okay. I, I'm never doing one. Anyway. So can I just say the next step? The, one the next step that you need book. to hear this, because there was one school I didn't go to, but it's in the local area, that actually gave the kids World War II style gas masks. Oh, I was hoping you'd say that. We were allowed to put one on, but we had to share it. No, there was one that actually gave out these, not props, like props, to every kid for their World War II day. <laughs> that, that's the that's thing. That's and then good. the alarm would Authentic. go off and they'd have to all put them on. Real connection So there. you can relive the scariest episode of Doctor Who. Excellent. Right, moving on. Geordie. We can't get a short off it. The one thing, no, the one part of World War II history I do feel was super obvious, considering how much they brush over the evacuation stuff, is that scene I mentioned about the beavers. It didn't, I didn't really think about the context for this scene. Remember his dedication. He was writing this for a long time. So he was probably writing this in the latter days of World War II, if not a little after, where rationing was a very big deal. Everyone was filing in ration cards. There's a So maybe this scene in particular is like a vestige of these kids have been eating absolutely awful food for a good portion of their youth. And now they get to have this sumptuous, fresh feast. And they get to have like a marmalade roll. Can you imagine how luxurious that must be when you've been living in the Blitz? I mean, just to kind of drop a history fact there. Do you know when rationing, the World War II era rationing, formally ended? When was it? 1954. So when the book came out, that's crazy. Thank you Sugar for sharing that. Sugar was still Duncan. being rationed. Like, 
Absolutely. And I hadn't made that connection. I think that does add so much more to why then the food is seen such a luxury. Like for these kids, they've gone through this hardship. This is reward. This is top tier. And it adds a a bit more context. I was about to say, the last gift that Santa Claus gives them is a bowl of sugar. I was going to put on another scene, though. And I, you're right, that is a great scene. And that is such a good price. Because you think nowadays you're like... <gasps> of course, Duncan! Turkish Delight! delight. It all makes Thank sense you. now! You think so bad of Edmund that he sells them up for Turkish Delight. And you're like, no. A kid then might have only have tasted it once in his life. He might have only had a cube. To be able to have a whole box... It is luxury. That's... You're <sighs> right. I can't believe it. I People have made so many fucking jokes about, like... I like. I had Turkish Delight once. It was okay. Not sell my family out to Satan okay, but still pretty good. I've had Turkish Delight. It sucks. I've had Turkish Delight. I love it. It's a Christmas tradition. Mm. I literally put it down every year along with, <laughs> along with like a bottle of mead. I'm like, yes, I want a box of Turkish Delight. It's like my Christmas treat. And every year I can't eat one without going, I am like Edmund. Ha ha ha. <laughs> I am Edmund the Just. I rewatched the movie before this one, obviously, because it's 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 easy to watch. It's a fun time. And I, I noticed at the end of that that they all get their monikers like Peter the Magnificent, Edmund the Just, uh, like right as they're crowned. And then at the end of his book, it's clearly like a moniker they've earned over the years. So like, I know that Aslan's probably a good judge of character. But it's a little, it's a little ironic to give Edmund the title of the Just. Thus, he is Edmund. I know he's just the redeemed just. himself, but he's just he redeemed just did himself. It. Give him a little bit of time before you're like, hey, uh, you're using my words against me. I would like to see that me. scene and just say that it's not that Aslan's a good judge of character; is that he must just be prophetic. Like the prophecies in this story, and I'm like, well, where do they come from? Is not Aslan. There's no other source of like magic who's you know there's no one staring to their crystal ball i can only assume aslan left the prophecies so that's how i justify it what i like about well here's something i noticed about the character of aslan obviously this is a very short book but i noticed even more so than that aslan is not in much of this book he is in it for a really brief period of time true he only appears about the two-third mark and then he's dead for a little bit. Not long. Not long. And then he comes back for a little bit again. Yeah, and he's... But it's really impressive to me what an impression he leaves on the story. And it really speaks to how strong that character is. That he's not a complicated character in any stretch of imagination. He's... I mean, I guess there is one layer of complexity to it. And I actually really like this in the story about how he's both good and also terrible like, terrible in the old-fashioned sense. Like, there is something earth-shakingly real and dangerous about him. So I somewhat disagree with you, Jordi. You could say he's not very complex, but I actually think he does a really good job of demonstrating this huge spectrum that Aslan has to occupy. You say he's both good and terrible and dangerous and terrifying, but also when he gets resurrected for the first time, he's like, chase me, let's play in the flowers. And... He has this both juvenile joy and innocent wonder, but at the same time, he has to hand out the harsh justice to the world. And I think at no point does it feel out of character to have him do these sort of swings. 
he is both the hero, he is both standoffish, yet he's still involved. I just think it's really amazing that Aslan can be both sort of silly but sort of magnificent, mm. standoffish and close. And I actually kind of wonder how he's so he's really has tied it together, particularly in Line the Witch in the Wardrobe. I don't think he does it nearly as well in the later books. But over to you. Yeah, I mean, my memory of Aslan in the later books is that in The Prince Caspian, he's deliberately written to be very distant. Like, the the theme of the story is sort of like, how do you live without a clear, obvious messianic figure in your life? Like, what if Jesus isn't showing up, like, to help you out and make you ride into battle and stuff? Do you keep the faith anyway? And in in Lavoisier with Dawn Treader, I remember he's really, weirdly preachy and, like, kind of rude to Lucy. He is. He definitely has, in the Voice Dawn Treader, moments of... <laughs> this is the moral lesson. And I think that's kind of why I lost a little bit of wave on that book. And at the end, in the final battle, he goes, I think, too far to the other extreme of just, like, just be in love with me and forget about your mere earthly woes. And I'm like, okay, if you say so. What what I think really works in this book is that he walks this line, which even a lot of, like, more obvious depictions of Christ struggle to represent, which is the duality of God himself. You know, the Old Testament and the New Testament, because these are really contradictory images of God. How is he both vengeful and scary and also so passionate, compassionate and forgiving? Um... And then you're, and but this Aslan is the Jesus who's going around flipping tables in the temple and destroying fig trees. So Jesus flips te- tables. Oh yeah, man! Do you not know this? Nope. Okay, there's Context. a story in the New Testament about uh, these people who are using the temple as like a marketplace, and he's so outraged by um he's so outraged by this by this place being sacrileged that he goes around and he flips tables and like threatens people with a whip and stuff it's the like one of the few times you see jesus get really mad interesting okay i've I've not really seen that kind of characterization on him so that that's interesting perspective and i think then taking that then back to the character of aslan which obviously is a clear jesus stand-in he does get angry and he does get violent and mm-hmm. i do like the fact that i say do like he clearly has an element when when he deals with some of the other creatures, you know, those are on the witch's side. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of mercy and opportunity. They are the bad guys. And Aslan... Yeah. There is a bit where he's like, Peter, fucking kill that wolf. Do it. Now pl- cleanse your blade of his blood. Clean your sword, Peter. And let me knight you. Is more mm. the vibe. But you're absolutely right. He is, doesn't hold back from the... Now's the time to get violent. Which, does that lend into more the heroic fantasy side of Narnia? Or is that an ode back to fairy tales, which were very violent? Or is that meant to be really pulled on from the, you know, Christian background? Are you meant to read directly onto that? I don't know, I, man. I don't know. <laughs> Neither do I. I. I kind of think, I go, well, you know what? A lot of fairy tales are violent. I wouldn't even connect it so much to the fairy tale stuff. I really feel like it is just a sort of like, you're a soldier of Christ, Peter. You must go out and destroy them as like you're a crusader. You know, like these aren't people. Like in this book, at least, Peter's not fighting human beings. Save that for the next one. But 
or the next next one. Uh, confusing. But, you know, he's fighting minotaurs and wolves and, like, animals very on purpose because he wants to make it less... He wants to make it less gruesome. He wants to make it less real. And he shows the final battle takes place off screen because he doesn't want it to be a big, violent book. And he wants to keep that at a distance. Even though Aslan canonically, like... Rips, <laughs> rips the the white witch apart. He is a lion. He attacks a a woman. I mean, she is part giant, you know, and also part giant, part gin. They always really forget about that whole Adam part. Also, I realized while I was reading it through this time that this would have been my first experience of learning who the character of Lilith was. Geordie, could you please expand for me who the character of Lilith was? Adam's first wife. I'm like, excuse me, uh, him and Eve hit it off quite straight away. Okay. All right, so uh, this is actually, like, something which doesn't have a clear answer, like, anthropologically. But to put it really simply, you know, Duncan, that there are, like, different drafts of a Bible, right? Yes. Right. And specifically... My understanding is this is even a draft of the Bible. It's like a draft of a Jewish holy text, which puts the origin of humanity not with um, Adam and Eve, but with another character who's called Lilith. And Lilith is a more malevolent figure than Eve. I, I, in that she like falls more willingly. She's not tricked. And Lilith has been recharacterized through later text to be like an aspect of the devil himself so when c.s lewis uses the name lilith he really means satan okay pretty straight and direct then and i do think that's i'm gonna say an interesting decision obviously you know 1950s britain christianity is the name of the day um you know c.s lewis would have been written for the perspective that everyone reading his book probably going to be christian so maybe doesn't yeah, need that I mean, context there would have been a greater distinction drawn between whether you were a protestant or a catholic so i think that always kind of reminds me then of that father christmas point that he brings in the canon of then the christian you know the canon of the bible as casually into his fantasy world as any of the other elements i suppose for a young child reading it back then again don't particularly know, but then I'm assuming Lilith would have been a much more either a common character or at least someone that they could have turned to their parents and gone, who's Lilith? And their parents would have gone, here. You know what always struck me as really interesting? When Peter, like, does what you might consider swearing, he says stuff like, by Jove. Oh, there's definitely a gum in here. Well, gum is like... Yeah, there's gum and there's great Scott and all sorts of old school, what I consider like, you know, Lord of the Flies era stuff, but specifically by Jove, which is by Jupiter, Zeus. It's like, is that, that's not, that's a heresy, isn't it? You're not supposed to do that. Is that what by Jove? I thought that was, okay, <laughs> ignorance about to get revealed, Geordie. I always thought that was by Jehovah and that was what it was short for. <laughs> I'm pretty sure... Well, no, Jove is is just another name for Jupiter. And I don't think anyone's called Jehovah Jove. (laughs) Okay, my ignorance. My brain just filling in blanks, making up connections that aren't there. So, because we were talking about Christianity and stuff, I was just checking out um, uh, a page on C.S. Lewis, 
and his Christianity, because I, I, I thought, I wanted to make sure this was the case, that he converted to the Church of England after being an atheist for most of his life, and that Tolkien was really unbummed about this because he wanted to be Catholic. And I checked it, and that, and that seems to be true. But then I found this thing where it says, he records making a specific commitment to Christian belief while on his way to the zoo with his brother. <laughs> I mean, okay. I want to know, was that because they were going to the zoo? Was there something about the zoo? That's where he saw Aslan, bro. <laughs> he saw Aslan, and he turned around, and he saw the beavers. And and then there was the wolves <laughs> and the thing, and he thought they were scary. Oh, my goodness. That one trip to find all of Narnia. Can you imagine it was raining, and they just didn't go that day? Fantasy landscape forever Man. changed. <laughs> Do you think the professor is supposed to be talking? Oh, I have never heard that interpretation. I love the character of the professor, by the way. Uh, firstly, because it, I like how it connects back to Magician's Nephew and obviously wasn't intended to when the book was first written and his speech on logic as a child that has ever been told they were lying for an adult I was like that was the speech I was just like yes thank you I am lying but I'm going to pretend that this is what it's actually all about uh, I'm talking about a speech where Lucy has come out of the wardrobe and gone I found a magic land and Peter and Susan are like no and Edmund's like who has already found the magic land as well gone no. And then they go to the professor like, what's wrong with her? And he's like, well, think logically. Does she normally tell the truth? Yes. Okay, so she's not lying. Oh, she must be insane. Does she seem insane? No. Well, then she's not insane. And they're like, so does that conclude that there's a magic land? He's just like, yeah. That's bad logic, Lewis. I'm sorry. I scrolled a little further down of a Wikipedia page and the professor is definitely Lewis. Apparently he took in evacuees during the war. That is, in many ways, even more heartening. Do you have any yeah. stories of your grandparents getting evacuated? Is that something you ever grew up on? Mm, I don't think my grandparents were evacuated because they already lived in the countryside. Fair enough. My granddad did also live in the countryside, but my grandmother... Also, I think they were too young. Because my, my grandmother was, like, a very little girl when, the, when World War II ended. Oh, I'm trying to do the maths now. So, was it my grandfather would be 95 this year? So that would have made him roll it back 92, 70, 10. Yeah, he would have been a young kid, and my grandmother would have been about a little younger, maybe five or six. And I know my grandmother got evacuated, and she always tells the story of when she got taken, she ended up as a, at a large house, like in the story. And it was actually multiple families got taken there. And she always tells this lovely story about how the guy who owned the house for Christmas dressed up as Father Christmas for all the evacuees. And it's a really nice heartwarming story. Uh, she said it's really unfortunate because her and her brother were separated and he ended up going to a, to a farm, which was not as nice. Um, and he had to, they, yeah, they apparently made him do labours around the farm. And then apparently their dad came home intermittently visiting and was like nope i'm taking you all back to the city but i just think that's you know that this kind of story of kids being evacuated then was not common i don't want to say that but it wasn't an unheard of experience that people kind of went through mm. no absolutely i mean it was a very important aspect of you know, home life in home life in britain 
as as, impo- as important as the cultural artifact that is Dad's army. You know, that's that stuff. Uh, there's a reason why stuff like that was really important and uh, big in the zeitgeist of post-war Britain. So, talking about then post-war, and we talk a lot about the fantasy genre as a whole. Geordie, where do you feel Narnia fits then? What do you think is the legacy of Narnia? Massive question, deserves its own uni essay, but still, summarise it. <laughs> I think that it's uh, an important tentpole in the present state of well, fantasy, I mean, if nothing else, the relationship between C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, you know, two very good friends, apparently the character of Treebeard is based off of C.S. Lewis, which is, has to be the most devastating insult I could imagine from a friend. I mean, every single episode of this podcast, I make Duncan say a humiliating lie about himself, but still, by being compared to a very boring tree man. But, you know... So much stuff in this book and in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. These are really important temples in the world of fantasy. The idea of walking through into another magical world. So much of those later stories are going to go back to to this. Just having animals talking, you know. Obviously, that's an important part of, like, Aesop's fables and stuff. But it connects it to the modern fantasy world. This is the point where so many people are going to read it they're going to grow up having read it and going to tell stories of their own. I couldn't agree more. I think for this book to create that separate world, to not just have them run off in the woods of England and find fairies and magic, but to go and step through the door into Narnia and start to build that world, mm-hmm. I do think is actually quite unique at the time. It certainly was a big push in the direction for other world fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I would say, and I really want to make this clear, talking only about the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe in this next statement, not talking about the rest of the series, although it does apply to some of them, it holds up amazingly well. Like, 73 years of age, it is staggering how well this particular book has aged. Bar a little bit of Susan, and a little bit of sexism around the battles, but I don't think it's egregious, personally. Yeah, I totally agree. And, um... There's a reason why when, like, the movie came out, they made a ton of adaptations, like, giving Susan more to do and aging up the kids. Like, I feel like um, the kids are a little too close in age. When I watched the BBC version, I was like, I can't tell which one's Edmund and which one's Peter. They're too, they're too close in age. Like, it feels like there should be more of a gap. But um, I, there's a, you know, even though they felt compelled to make changes to bring it to new source material... Both those things hold up really well. I think it's actually like a way more successful adaptation of an original fantasy story than even like the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy. They certainly had to change a lot less to fit it into the format. I mean, that is some strong words. As an adaptation, I am going to agree. Uh, Do you know what? No, actually, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. As an adaptation, I do. I fully agree. I think they got to change a lot less. They added a little bit. I think it really works very comfortably. You know, as you were... And the dynamic between Peter and Edmund in the movie is much better than that of, uh, between them during um uh, during this because they have a much clearer and stronger arc in how their relationship changes and why Peter is sort of hard on Edmund in particular places and why he might have been forced to grow up too fast and then them coming together at the end. Really cohesive, a whole package. 
in a weird way, you've kind of, even though I was trying to give like our closing statements, Geordie, you've kind of ticked me off to one little point in this book, which it's not really a critique. It's more of an observation of creative choice. And it brings me back to maybe when we were reading Good Omens. These kids are great, but at no point do I feel they are actually acting how children act. No, absolutely. These are like not. these are the ideals of children. This is what you remember thinking like when you I think back to like I mentioned playing with my siblings and I have this lovely whimsical yeah. image where it probably was was no more than about 25 minutes mucking about in the garden and then someone got whacked and started mm. crying. It was not mm-hmm. any, you know, whimsical day. Yeah. The these kids are great when you're a kid because you're like, yes, this is what I'll I'd be like on a brave adventure. I'd be very sensible and clever and all that. Absolutely not. And I'd really like the way I don't know, I think it's particularly that the scene with Peter where he's he's talking down to Edmund. It's just the way the line is written, I can only imagine it being spoken in an almost Downton Abbey kind of voice. Where he's like, Oh, you're positively beastly. <laughs> like I can't picture it being said any other way. And the same way... Mind you, mind you, something about this book which did not make it into movies, but which actually made me laugh, was when um, she, when Lucy gives Edmund, like, the healing drink, which I realised in this, they only drink once. I was really surprised by that. I thought it was way more important to the story. Um, I was when they... She gives it to him, like... Edmund looked better than ever before he'd eaten the witch's food, even since he'd come back from that horrible school where he'd changed all that much. and was like, oh my god, it was boarding school. Boarding school is what turned him evil. I mean, I do think C.S. Lewis has it out for British boarding schools. In fact, I think in every yeah. one of the subsequent books, he has seen, there's definitely a scene in Prince Caspian where Aslan essentially just runs into a school and beats up the schoolmaster. <laughs> Just out of there. And then Aslan comes in and says, Hey, teacher, leave those kids alone. And I also think Silver Chair, the opening to that is them basically running away from boarding school. Because Well, that one's also about Eustace, and that's like he goes to boarding school with Edmund, and like he is like a snotty, horrible private school prick. That's his character. What was, this, what was it? The perfect line in that. His name was Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Oh, beautiful work, C.S. Lewis. Beautiful work. And just this whole book, I'm just like, this is beautiful. It made me so happy to reread this book and connect to my childhood. Mm. Even if it wasn't for this book, I did love the 2005 adaptation. And I think Killer Cat Soundtrack deserves a lot of more credit than I think it actually does in terms of temples of Minority's fantasy. And for a wonderful book that's survived for 73 years and still going and still works. I'd happily see another adaptation. I've seen it on stage. I've listened to audiobooks. I've watched two filmed versions. Just fantastic. Mm, mm. Yeah, I downloaded for this because I thought I'd have more time to read it. The, uh, the BBC radio adaptation of the entire series. So I guess I'll start making my way through that slowly. Geordie... Is this your favourite Narnia books of the only few you've read? I don't think I can give an answer to that because I've only read three of them and I don't have strong enough memories of Prince Caspian 
to tell you what it was because I only read it once when I was like 10 or 11 years old. So I'm afraid I can't answer that question. It has to default to yes because it's such an essential and important part of my childhood and my relationship to fantasy. But I, I really can't say. Probably. What about you? So just kind of put the caveats in. I have not read Silverchair and I DNF'd on Dawn Treader. Probably should go back and finish it, but I've experienced all the others. I almost want to say I feel like Magician's Nephew deserves another go around. Just give it fresh in my mind before saying this. Mm. But having just finished this book in the last genuinely 12 hours, um, doing that since I started reading it, um, I, I, I do think I want to give it here. I do think Narnia peaks in this first book and never quite recaptures the same whimsy that this book holds which is if she comes damn close but i do think like the witch in the wardrobe takes it for me it's interesting to me duncan that so far you have never said the word the horse and his boy in this podcast episode why why are you avoiding talking about it it's not that i'm avoiding it it's because i kind of forget about it i think it's uh <laughs> horse and his boy is one of those ones where really quickly i think it's a very interesting concept and I really like the idea of C.S. Lewis exploring his world through a very different lens. It's a similar thing where I think it's very interesting when, say, when you have an existing series and you maybe you switch a protagonist or you you kind of go to a different part of the world and just tell another story somewhere off in your fantasy space. I think it's a lovely idea. Something uh, coming up quite recently, I believe. The guy who wrote um, Aragorn, not very good movie from 07 brought out a book tie-in anyway that's a different character <laughs> and Robbie Howard does a similar thing in his, his very later stories that weren't and in none of them were completed he starts telling stories in the Conan universe but not starring the character mm. so I love yeah, the yeah, concept yeah. I just think it's a bit dull and forgettable a book sadly so Duncan this is our last book of the year it is indeed Merry Christmas that was 2023. Looking forward to 2024. I I am. I don't know about you. I feel like it's going to be a good one. There is something a bit too sci-fi about the date 2024. 2023 was the cusp, but 2024, there's going to be fucking space cars out there, man. Androids and space cars, I'm telling you. Jordi, we crossed that line in 2015 when we caught up with the Back to the Future that was when no, when no 2015 is still too early it's still too early 2025 is when i start seeing people in my head with like robot parts coming off of them the future is just in some ways so disappointing in other ways maybe more amazing than anyone thought but you're right we are getting into the future and i think it's worth taking a moment now to just outline how we'll be handling the next little bit so thank you everyone who's been listening all this year we will be having an end of year wrap-up episode where me and Geordie will be talking over mm-hmm. our personal favourites, our personal disappointments, surprises, and talking about some of the myriad of other works that we've either watched, listened to, or read that perhaps didn't have its place on this podcast up till now. So if you have anything that you kind of want to voice, if you have a favourite episode or something that you're like, guys, you need to check this out, now's an ideal time to reach out to us on our Instagram, mm-hmm. it's just fantasy podcasts, or you can email us, email us at our Gmail, this fantasy podcast at gmail.com, and let us know what your favourites are. 
please send it in. If we get it, we will definitely talk about it in that episode. Very exciting times. And Duncan. And Geordie. Start, you'll be the one starting off next year. You have to lead us in. How are we going to kick off 2024? Well, Geordie, I know last year we took a little break in January and I don't want to do that again. I don't want to deny people listening to this podcast. So we will definitely keep up our fortnightly release schedule. But where do we start? I, do, I need a little break. It's Christmas. I've got a lot on. So I was thinking... Yeah, we both have holidays coming up and we won't be able to record for a bit. I think, wouldn't it be great just to do a little short story? A little, a little something different. A little, just a tiny little fantasy nugget. Golden nugget of fantasy. And I thought it would be really lovely to kick off the new year by returning to our roots. By reviewing something written by the same author as our very first ever episode. Don't go back and listen to it. The audio quality is absolutely no, horrific. On our first episode, Tower of the Elephant, a Conan story by Robert E. Howard. I would like to do another Robert E. Howard short story. A short story that has right. some have said... Which story is it going to be, Duncan? Is it going to be Pool of a Black One? Is it going to be Veil of Lost Women? The, the Frost Giant's Daughter? Which Conan story is it going to be? Geordie, it's not going to be a Conan story. We're going to go back. <gasps> We're going to go further back to a story that some have called the first sword and sorcery story of American fiction ever written. Debatably, that's not true, but some have said it. And <laughs> that story is the King Cole story, Shadow's Kingdom. Yes. Now, this is uh, one which I technically have read, but only because I've read the comic book adaptation of it by Dark Horse, and I don't remember it. All I remember thinking is like, oh, this is a first draft of Conan. Some ways true, some ways not. I can't wait to talk it all through with you, Geordie. This is an interesting foray. Uh, the Aside from the comic book, as I, I mentioned, this will be the first time I read a Robert E. Howard character who isn't Conan. He was a skilled writer and put out a lot of content in his very short writing career. And I think it's something worth exploring. Probably start with his Conan character, I'm not going to lie. But there's a lot out there. And if you've finished reading all his other works and you want to expand, this is a great place to go. Well, I'm looking forward to it, Duncan. Nice short read. This is a novella, right? Oh, yes. This is incredibly short. This is shorter than uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, two hours, six. Read it quicker than the movie. Shadow's Kingdom, honestly, read it on your lunch break, mate. The funny thing is, you say that, and I'm pretty sure it took me longer than two hours to read Red Nails. I think we've just learned I'm a quicker reader, but... Maybe so. Well... I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. And I've been your other host, Duncan Nickel. Till next time. See you next year. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye.